0: My best friend has hair. My best friend walks with a tail in the air. My best friend makes me feel
1: full Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love people who love cats and dogs, which is what this show is all about talking to experts and authors about the animals who share our world. Thanks for listening on Long Island's only NPR station, WLIW-FM 88.3, where Dog Talk originated 13 years ago. You can download podcasts of almost 700 previous shows in the podcast library at radiopetlady.com, along with my other Pet Talk podcast radio programs. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. This show is made possible in part by Dr. Elsie's precious cat a privately-owned company founded and run by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado whose life has been devoted to feline wellness. Dr. Elsie himself created all his specialized litters, from cat to low dust and long hair, to meet the needs of every cat as well as their human family members. Dr. Elsie is also the founding sponsor of the New York Cat Film Festival. This show is also brought to you with the generous support of Waruva a family-owned pet food company that makes a wide variety of high-protein recipes for cats and dogs using human-grade ingredients prepared in a human food facility. Because the Foreman family respects the nutritional needs of cats as obligate carnivores, they make only wet food in cans and pouches so cats can avoid dry, carbohydrate-based kibble. My guests today are Mark Beckoff who's back talking about another of his wonderful Psychology Today articles. This one is entitled, What Do Dogs Know and Feel About Death and Dying? Sherry Franklin will be here, the founder of Muttville in San Francisco, talking about how they've had to adjust to fostering and adopting during the pandemic and the fact that they've had their 8,000th adoption since she first opened out of her own house. Nathaniel Fields will be here from the Urban Resource Initiative in New York City, talking about the effects of the pandemic on domestic violence shelters. I am back with Mark Beckoff, my go-to man for all things animal. He's just never stays still. His His mind is always on fire thinking about mostly dogs, but also other animals, what they do, what they think, how they feel, how to give them a good life. And then there's the issue of death. And Mark has a wonderful, one of his many wonderful Psychology Today columns, which I'll have a link to, called Do Dogs Understand Death and Dying? and Or Do Dogs Know They're Dying? And I, I'm really eager to have this conversation. I think it's something we all wonder and worry about, the when, where, how, that death should or could or might take place for our dogs and for their surviving housemates. So, Mark, thanks for tackling yet another interesting, but I wouldn't call it thorny. It's not like it's uh, com- that people are in competition to have different ideas, but it's an important one, right?
2: Oh, it's a really important one, and I get, excuse me, emails about it all the time. What kind
1: Um, of questions do you get or comments?
2: Well, basically, you know, does my dog know they're dying? Um, Does my dog know that, you know, their housemate uh, could be canid, felid, or human, you know, is is dying or or, um, died? Um, What do they know about their own lives and possible demise um, and the questions just really are wide-ranging and they're really interesting and you know my bottom line answer is is pretty simple that um, dogs and many other animals grieve and mourn they experience sadness do they have the you know the same if you will concept of death that most humans do and my answer is we don't know and and, and and you know ever since I published that column in um, Psych Today I've had countless emails and they're phenomenally interesting you know give some a,
1: examples give some examples
2: yeah well you know the general message is yes my dog knew they were dying my dog knew that their best you know their household right. mm-hmm. were was dying um, and the stories are compelling you see changes in behavior um, you'll see, you know, a grieving dog, you know, slump around the house, mm-hmm. um, lose their desire to play, but I'm not playing devil's advocate here because like I said before, we really don't know what they know about whether they are dying literally or whether their friends, human or otherwise are dying or who have died. So, and I, I'm always really careful to say we don't know because that. I've had emails say, well, you know, you've said that they don't know. And no, I don't say that. Um, But they do grieve. And when I did field work on coyotes, we had a situation where a mother coyote left her group. She went off to hunt, for sure, and never came back. And the animals in the group, her, her children and her husband, if you will, and others, know what looking for her and then after about a week they stopped because there were things they had to do and it's really important unless you find like a carcass or somebody reports they found a carcass if you will she disappeared um, and I don't think anybody in the group of coyotes said all oh, mom's gone she passed away she died all they know is she disappeared so, I, I, the reason I stress that is because around a house, it's possible there's a death odor. Ants produce um, a pheromone that indicates death, and they seem to change their behavior when they sniff it. But I don't know what they really know, you know, about. The concept of death like we do.
1: Well, you talk in, in the same article, the 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 anecdotes about elephant groups and what they do when there's a, a death of a mom and the baby stands over it, a death of a baby and the mom stands over it, or a death mm-hmm. of another adult and everybody forms, call it a mourners group. I haven't studied elephants half as closely as the great elephant studiers, but you, you talk in the article about having gone to a national reserve and and watched the difference in two groups of elephants, the cheerful elephants over there, where nobody had died, and knowing something was terribly wrong in this other group, only to find out a matriarch had died. So you've seen it up close. You've seen whether there was a carcass there or not. You've seen grief manifest in a group of animals.
2: Oh, yeah. I've seen, like I said, I've seen it in coyotes. I've probably seen it in wild wolves. These are wild animals. And yeah, um, the first day that I went out into the field at the Samburu, national reserve in northern kenya i was with ian douglas hamilton who you know people call the jane girl of elephants ah, I mean, right right he, you know he's been up there for god now close to 50 years or more Whoa. And the minute i walked we drove into the field i could feel the morning you know there was a group of elephants they were slumping around their tails were low their bodies were low their trunks were low and i said to ian like something does i remember what i said i said Something feels off here, and I use the word feels, and he said, yeah, the matriarch died a week or so ago, and so do the elephants know that she died in the sense that she's never coming back? Once again, I don't know that, but it's possible there's an odor that tells them that, or, or there's an odor that is unique, so, you know, in other words, there. Was their, It could be the same with dogs. I just want to throw that in, that there's some kind of odor that's produced that is brand new that tells them something. Um, I don't know how to study it. I mean, I, I guess there would be ways where you could capture some odor or, you know, collect the air and, you know, present it to other dogs. So, for example, when I had two dogs and one died, if I could have, you know, gotten the air from around, excuse me, when, him when he died, then I could, you know, release it to other dogs. And, but, and I don't but, mean that's, that-
1: but that's super scientific as opposed to observational, which is your great gift. In other words, if you had the two dogs and one never saw the death of his mate, and right. so just like his, his mind is full of question marks, what happened here? But what if the vet comes to the house and puts the dog to sleep? We all want to know, should the other animals be present? Is that right. useful for them? Is it useful for the pers- the, the animal who's dying to have yeah, their I, pals around? Yeah, I
2: think it depends on the dog and the relationship. But Jessica Pierce, who I've written books with and I work very closely with, you know, has written on that, and it depends on the relationship. But... I always have felt that there's nothing lost by that. You know what I mean. I mean, it's just they can say goodbye. And- but if we
1: were to watch you, mostly because you're the the, the famous watcher, if you were to be an objective observer, not with your own dog dying, where you're you know holding their paw and crying yourself, right? What would we see in the other dog in the moment of death, or in the or in the hours, or even days leading up to it, as that dog's health declined to the point that that we all like to say the dog will let you know when every vet says it and we've all seen that look on a dog's face like i'm done i cannot do any more of this it's like cloud over their face their expression changes their eyes change does the other dog smell that see it experience it feel it and is that helpful
2: no but yes there are radical changes oh You know, Mary used to play, and she doesn't play. We don't walk together. I mean, I don't know the bubble that's going on in the dog's brain, but they notice the change in behavior. They notice the loss of energy, for example. They may pick up stress pheromones from the dog that are new or indicate that something is off. Um, And, you know, when I've had two dogs and the stories I get, I mean, they're pretty compelling stories that – there's been changes in behavior and then you know the leap is made that oh Mary, who lived with Jane knew that Jane was you know dying or not feeling well. And I don't see any reason to discount that. you know, there could be the changes in odor. and there could just be the changes in behavior. Oh my goodness, you know, I'd walk into the room and Jane would jump up now she doesn't or or her gait is off because you know they're sending visual as well as, um, you know, olfactory or smell signals, right? To us, um, and what us. I find fascinating about these discussions is that we don't know, but what kind of you know strong inferences can we make? So, getting back to the elephants, I mean, they knew something was off. I mean, you know, whoever the matriarch was was no longer there. She wasn't moving, and there have been studies, few studies done, where um. A woman elephant researcher put out the skulls of different animals, you know, buffalo, elephants. This is in the field in Africa. Right. And the elephants paid more attention to the skull of the elephant. So, you know, once again, what do they know? I don't know, but they know something. And they're able to pick out, for example, you know, the skull of a member of their species
1: but then Uh, but then i guess the question we have living so closely with our animals are we doing them a favor to let them either be there during the going to sleep put to sleep euthanized (laughs) process or at least to sniff and see the body so that the question is answered for them because the elephants see the body and they Mm -hmm. know whatever it is that an elephant can know about the dead corpse it definitely smells differently i'm gonna guess i don't know what the olfactory system of an elephant is but it's it's dead yeah it's it's it's, pretty strong i mean it's
2: equally more powerful than a dog i thought so
1: i thought so so they're they're taking in this information and they go this is the smell of not a good ending or or no no future and surely dogs have to smell that too i've had two dogs that three dogs that I had put to sleep at the vet. The vet couldn't come to the house in time for what I thought the dog's suffering level was. And then I brought the body back home to bury it and had one or two other dogs at home. And I was very conflicted. Do I let them sniff it or are they going to freak out? And I kind of let them sniff it. But then I thought, oh, no, don't get too close. And it's something I think would be valuable to us because we grieve so profoundly, so deeply. And for so long, we want the death to be as good a death as we can and we worry about the grieving housemate and how that works. I'm going to tell you an anecdote and it's my my only but quite extraordinary death anecdote and wonder uh-huh. what you make of this. I had an old um, my whimer my runners are all from rescue. I had an old guy Scooby Doo, very old, extremely crippled, horrible elbow uh, elbows that stuck out, standing up, walking around was torture. And wasn't looking for another, and had another mixed breed dog, Jazzy, who was still pretty good. She was about 10. And I wasn't looking for another Weim, but one came along at Virginia Beach and drive down in a nine-month-old a female Weimaraner, who I still have, called Maisie. This was seven years ago. So she was full of beans. She was nine months old, just bouncing, bouncing bell. Bring her back, and she drove Scooby crazy. There was about a two-week period that they knew each other. She tried to play with him. She nipped at his heels. It was torture for him. We'd spend all our time trying to shoo her away and leave him alone, but we thought, as people often do, oh, a younger, friskier dog will pep up my old dog. In this case, he couldn't. He didn't dislike her, but he couldn't keep up and he couldn't play with her. And one fine day, in about a two-week period, which means she hadn't known him at all, she'd been a puppy mill dog bought from a a a mall in Long Island, driven Mm. to Virginia Beach, where the dog went to doggy daycare, and they said, we don't want this dog anymore at six months. She'd lived in a doggy daycare wine rescue for three months. So this is a dog who had no particular attachments yet, to put it mildly. Right. He came inside. He lay down in front of the wood stove, Mr. Scooby-Doo did, and wouldn't raise his head. I called the vet, and I said, could you come over any time today? He's he's given it up. Mm Mm-hmm. The young dog, nine months old, who'd been doing nothing but being a pain in the neck, jumping around. There were two dog beds in, in front of every place. There were always two dog beds, every wood stove, every office. She lay down on the bed next to him in the most extraordinary way. She lay her little head, not so little, but her young head, mm-hmm. on top of his head, mm-hmm. on his neck, mm-hmm. and stayed there for two hours until the vet came. She didn't move. Yep. Now, Um. what do you make of that? That dog knew that the old dog was, I don't know, fill in the blanks, but we were all i just open-mouthed. I've never, I've always thought, no matter what I know about her in her life, I think you are the most compassionate, empathetic girl that ever lived, that you knew this old man was in pain, suffering, and leaving, and you were going to keep him company. Now, that's obviously anthropomorphosis. What do you make of that?
2: Yeah, I agree with you that she knew something was wrong and she was trying to comfort him. I mean, people get so upset, you know, they go, oh, you're just anthropomorphic. Well, no, we're not. We're just reading the animals, yes. you know, with, you know, you, of course. But, you know, we're fluent in dog. We're dog literate. And pay attention to the signals the dog is given off. There's something different here. There's something wrong here. Um, I smell it. I see it. I, I, I hear it. Maybe there's a change in the breathing pattern. Right. And I don't, you know, I, I just, it's, it's so funny because a lot of people I know will say, oh, you're just being anthropomorphic. And then they'll tell me these sorts of stories. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go, well, you know, the old thing I always say is, you know, when you say an animal is happy, they don't say it. But when you say they're sad, they'll say, oh, you're being anthropomorphic. Isn't
1: that interesting?
2: And it's ridiculous. I wrote a story about that, about an elephant I saw at a zoo. And I said, oh, she's miserable. She's rocking back and forth. She has cuts on her legs. Yes. She's been chained. And the guy next to me said, oh, you're being anthropomorphic. She's happy. And I said, well, why is saying she's happy not being anthropomorphic? Well said. <laughs> and it got really quiet. And so... The anthropomorphic card to me plays no role in this. Of course, we are going to use human words, you know, right. and of the language with which, you know in which we're fluent. But of course, she's feeling something. She sees. She smells. She hears. Right. Ethologists call them composite signals. So it could be a combination of input, if you will, from all of those senses. And there's just something wrong. And he needs comfort i mean get over it you know just get over it (laughs) it in the field well you do you know you see it among chimpanzees you see it among lots of non-human primates you see it in wolves and coyotes and jackals yes why wouldn't you see it in your dog and stuff and and see i think that the more people are open up to those things or open up to those Explanations—the more they'll see. And like I said, I really—you um, know—I had a couple of emails that said, "Oh, you're being too cautious." And yes, I am being cautious because we don't know. But if someone pressed to me and said, or pressed me and said, "What do you think?" I'll just tell you right now—they know there's something wrong. They know there's something going on, and I think that we should honor that. And if well you, said, you know, if you think that the relationship between the two dogs was of such that it would be good for the survivor to be there, then do it. Yes,
1: yes, absolutely. If you have that instinct, follow it. Follow your gut. And if you think that that, that that dog dying would feel better, just like we say, you know, there's a whole movement of no one should die alone. Of course, COVID has made that the saddest of all sadness, But there is a movement. No one should die alone, and people sit with dying people, people that are in comas, people that are ancient, that are supposedly unconscious. So why should a dog die alone? Even if you're with them, why shouldn't their other four-legged companions be there too? We should all be there to honor their life and and support their death, whatever death means to any of us. You do really great work. You do great thinking, and I think it's important that you appear to be cautious and appear to be scholarly because you are a scholar and you need to be respected for that scholarliness. You can't devolve into cutesy talk or into, you know, blubbering, but I think it's really great that you bring up this topic so that people that have the death of a dog in their life can accept it and embrace it as part of life. Death is part of life and let the other animals share in that part of the journey. Thank you so much for being here and all the great work and writing you do.
2: Well, no, thank you. I couldn't agree more with you. Just get over it and, (laughs) honor your feelings and theirs.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Mark Beckhoff. And there's a link to the article. You'll all really enjoy it. This show is brought to you by Evermore Pet Food, a privately owned company making fresh dog food shipped to your door. Evermore is owned by two women who select fresh organic vegetables mixed with fresh, humanely raised beef, lamb, chicken, or turkey to make nutritionally balanced dog food. After low temperature cooking, the sealed pouches are frozen and shipped right to your home to be served as a complete meal or as part of your dog's diet. We are also supported by Iceland Pure, a privately owned company that guarantees freshness and purity in their human-grade omega-3 fish oils for pets. Odor-free salmon, sardine, and anchovy fish oils responsibly sourced in the clean waters of Iceland and Norway. Now they have added next-level premier fish oil with the documented health benefits of shark oil. The show is also supported by Daily Dose a daily dental chew with an outer layer that cleans dog's teeth using a patented ingredient that breaks down the biofilm and harmful bacteria that can accumulate on teeth and gums. The core of each chew contains clinically proven supplements to help manage a dog's joints, heart, skin, or anxieties. I am so delighted to welcome back to the show. It's been a while. Sherry Franklin is the founder of Muttville, the most marvelous senior dog rescue in San Francisco They've been the beneficiary of the Dog Film Festival when it sells out in San Francisco. Unfortunately, COVID-19 shut down the Dog Film Festival, San Francisco, and pretty much the rest of the world. But some good things happened at Muttville. And Sherry, good for you for finding a silver lining in what must have been a very scary time. San Francisco was the very first town to be shut down in this country. That's right. We were a
0: little at the forefront. I just want to thank you, Tracy, for having me back on again, too, because I think um, some of the things that we created here uh, at Muttville and in San Francisco um, were were really the model for what other people started to do as far as saving um, animals that are still in need of uh, getting adopted.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, our world shut down, but the dogs who lost their owners one way or another, and the senior dogs lose them in all kinds of sad ways, they're sitting in a municipal shelter, the San Francisco Animal Care and Control, across the street from you, and with no contact between humans and everything shut down, you still wanted to make sure those dogs were with, were with you in good foster homes, and you had to find a way to connect them with people who wanted to foster and eventually adopt. And what's incredible to me is that in the first two weeks of COVID, you had a 900% increase <laughs> in the number of people that wanted to foster. It, it was uh,
0: truly uh, something I have never experienced in my close to 30 years in animal rescue. Uh, the amount of um, just regular people that so we're all of a sudden home and and shut in, who, this is it. Now we can get a dog. And, um, you know, or we're lonely and, you know, or we're scared. And all the other things that, you know, this whole terrible time and this COVID and now that the other things that are going on, we all are seeking that same thing, something that comforts us, something that makes us feel good. And all of a sudden, everybody was filling out applications to foster dogs, to adopt dogs, Uh,
1: yet 900% increase over last year the same week. Which is amazing because Mudfield has always been... You have, you created such an environment of happiness and joy with old dogs, dying dogs, dogs that were not at the most beautiful ones on the, on the runway, but yeah. you created such a feeling of, this will be great, that you always had a lot of people wanting to adopt and foster. You were never, you know, trying to knock on yeah. doors, and yet you still had this huge increase. It's It must have been amazing to you that there were all these people kind of lurking in the in the wings yes. of San Francisco, and they couldn't do it because they've had full time jobs. Well, I think the thing is, is that even the people with full time jobs that, and we really
0: talked about as far as adoptions go. We really talked about what are what are your plans going to be? You know, if you're going to go back to work one day, and you know your dog is going to be home, and what what are you going to do? And you know, really talking that through, and and all of them. You know, we're interested in how they were going to plan around that and still wanted to adopt. And uh, we've just seen, uh, it's been a really interesting to see um, people very taking this very seriously and um, coming out of the woodwork. And, and I think if we're going to start to see an actual sea change, even as we all start to get back to somewhat of a new normal, but right. normal I think that people are going to be considering, uh, having more companion animals live with them and I, and cats as well. I don't, and bunnies and I mean, all, you know, all animals. But I do think that, um, they're taking on such a special role right now in, in our family life and our home life that there's, there's no turning back. So I think this is the one silver lining that I can say, um, Holds true for this tragic, this tragedy that's, uh, you know, that we've, that we're all dealing with.
1: Right, this befallen the world. And yeah. I guess by having senior dogs, I, I think one of the things that has people most feeling affectionate about Muttville and the dogs that you take in is that it's, it really is unselfish those people that want to get a puppy or a young, healthy, got your life ahead of you kind of dog are certainly being loving and unselfish too. But I do think that taking in a senior dog, you don't know how much time they have left, but it's certainly shorter than whatever you might think of as average. It's not just about the adopter. It really is about the dog. And I think that's that's what inspired you and made you a, to be nominated yeah. as a CNN national hero. You saw this years ago when senior dogs simply mm-hmm. died in shelters. Nobody wanted them. They were like icky, old, you know, kind of arthritic, yeah. and they they didn't and look very good. There's yeah. got to be something really right. wrong with them right. in a,
0: a shelter. And, and the truth is, is that most of these dogs are so loving and so grateful and maybe needed a bath and maybe needed a dental or, you know, needed to get something done. But, you know, other than that, you know, there's, you can't ask for an easier, better fit into your home, into your life. You know, we've been, uh, we just, I don't know if you know this, but
1: we hit our 8,000th dog that we rescued, uh, two weeks ago. I did so, I did know um, that and I wanted to let you be the one to say it because 8,000 uh, dogs is some yes. incredible number from from what was originally a little storefront office that you had and the dogs all just lived well, the, in there with you and some volunteers and now you have a full-time vet and a vet tech <laughs> and, and God knows how long your list of volunteers and fosters is. It's as long as your arm, right? Yes, yes, yes. I actually, not a storefront, Tracy, actually, it was my house. Oh, was it? Years. I somehow yeah. thought it was we like an office space. space. Oh, my God. No. It was but, just a room in your so, house. Wow. Yeah,
0: so now we have, of course, we have a the first cage-free facility we opened in 2011. And we have a full veterinary program that now runs out of Muttville. Um, and we have over 300 volunteers And um, we are so incredibly lucky because in the first 72 hours of the shelter in place, we decided to close our shelter for, you know, just for the uh, safety and health of, uh, you know, all of our staff and all of our volunteers. But because we have such a strong foster program, we moved all 91 dogs into foster homes. So, you know, we've been... Now doing our virtual adoptions um, through Zoom meetings or you know Google Hangouts. How and, does that work? Um, and foster does, homes. does
1: does the foster hold the dog up to the screen and, mm-hmm. and do the oh, person yes. interested <laughs> ask questions and the dog answers? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, actually, what
0: I think we're gonna we're gonna have some takeaways uh, from this when we start to do less virtual and more in person. Is that this really has worked well because we have the uh, the the doctor has the opportunity to really talk to the foster family and really know, you know, about what this dog is like in the home and gets to see the dog and gets so excited and when they their first, you know, in person visit. Is you know loaded with excitement and the thrill of actually meeting your new dog after you've already interviewed him, right? Or right. family, yes. And it's become, I mean, people have really they've all you know the the input that we've we we've received um, that we since we started doing this has been really positive.
1: And that's a really wonderful positive. tool for you to have going forward, even yeah. when the world is more opened up. It's a wonderful yeah. way to use your foster family's time better, because they, you know, oh, they yes. have the, they don't have to stop their whole life. Get in a car, drive somewhere, bring the dog, bring its leash, bring its whatever, its its potty pad. It, it, yes, they're in home and the dog's comfortable, so the dog is at their very best too. They're in their their temporary home, that's their bridge so home. Oh, true. That's A
0: very important part is that they're actually meeting the dog in a, in a calm, sort of neutral environment where there's not a lot of stress going on like in an animal shelter. Even your um, own
1: shelter, which is open when you're able to get all right. the dogs back there. And it's it's a big open space and it's cheerful and jolly. It's not the same for an oldster as being the the main man in someone's house. And, and you know, only, right. only he gets the couch. He doesn't have to, like, you know, wait his turn. It's pretty fabulous. You have dogs in hospice, Sherry, and... I I've, mm-hmm. I've always been interested. We we had a great film that one of your wonderful filmmakers made. It was in the mm-hmm. Dog Film Festival last year and at the moment we're we're on a pause button with the Dog Film Festival, but it will as soon as the theaters can open back up, it'll be a part of the traveling show it was Fospus Dog Sid, And we've had some other great I hope to have a a Muttville tale movie every yeah. every year in the Dog Film Festival. But this little guy was blind and ancient and wasn't long for this world. And this young couple adopted him and thought it was a great honor to take him camping and sit around a fire, you know, and just let him be loved. What do you think that's about for people? Do you think that, I wonder if it's because in part, we humans don't have a way to do that for our humans who are old and dying. We don't have a way to comfort and...
0: I think it's a calling. I do think it's a calling. I am a hospice mom. Uh, Right now I have uh, three hospice dogs from Phil that are spending the rest of their days at my house. Um, I do feel that um, it's an honor, and I do feel that dogs, when they're in hospice, in fact, I've got a boy here. They told me he might last a week, and he's been here almost a month now. He's a yellow lab mix how old something do
1: you he's think?
0: uh 13 he's 13 he's riddled with cancer wow. but he doesn't know that right he has right. no idea about that right and he's enjoying life so much and that i can participate and give him all of that it, it fills my heart every day wow it fills my heart wow. that i know that i'm giving him the best time plus i love a happy dog and i love to be able to make them happy it yes just, it's it's not for everybody, but there, we're finding that our hospice dogs get adopted as quickly as our regular healthy senior dogs get adopted. So um, that people are finding that it it can be very rewarding to the human. And, um, you know, I, I, I like to say that, you know, we, we have a going away party for, oh for my our, God. our hospice dogs. Oh and, my God. and we invite all their friends and we make it into something that is peaceful and joyful wow. and, you know, letting them leave this. this and and, and you you said something that really stuck with, with me. We can't always do that for our humans, for our human family and friends. We can't choose the time when they're going to leave us. Um, Far to, from to it. In, it. In to, fact,
1: to, Sherry, one yeah. of the things that I think was most disturbing, particularly in Italy, where people tend to be quite religious, or at least they are at the end of their life and very family oriented. And so many people died, were dying in the north of Italy, and they had to die alone. And I think that yes. death was harsh. And the whole thing was, a, you know, obviously devastating. But the alone death, even in America, the few people I've known where somebody got COVID so so sick that they yeah. wound up expiring from it. The fact that no one could be with them. You know, there's, there's actually a movement. I, I was a volunteer ambulance driver and EMT in East Hampton for eight years. And there's a group of people from the, the ambulance corps. Since I left, I, this didn't exist when I was there, called No One Dies Alone. There's actually a group of people everywhere that sit with people, human people, when they are even unconscious and dying, with the belief that no one should die alone, N-O-D-A. And I think that's really what you're talking about, is that feeling we should be with them and be there for a going-away party, be there when their soul leaves the body and and the chains of this life are are off of their back. You know, I
0: saw both my parents, uh, both of them passed away. and, and,
1: And, you know, even in hospice
0: care, uh you know it still was painful to watch and sometimes you know my mom it took days right uh and you know she wasn't really conscious anymore but you could see the suffering on her face i mean it just it, it broke my heart and and i know that i don't want that for me or my friends right and um it's nice to be able to relieve that with your animals and hopefully Soon enough, you know, we'll we will pass laws where we will be able to I agree. do something that makes it easier for people to pass away, um, instead of you know suffering for two weeks, unco- whatever. Right? Know. No, I totally but, agree. But,
1: we all think how luck. How often do we think? Amongst our, you know, while we're crying for the dog, we put to sleep so peacefully, and being there with him or her, how often we think, oh, if only we could have this for ourselves, and and that's something you experience. All the time, because your dogs are all seniors. All the time, so, you know, eating, the, um, you know. I, I I like to say they're eating an ice cream cone, oh. and then they slowly fall asleep. Yeah, you know, because
0: they just get injected with something that just makes them fall asleep. Yep. And a lot of them are in such pain or have such anxiety, and those are some of the reasons that we, you know, make the decision to say goodbye to begin with. Right. That to have them softly, peacefully, like. Relax into a nice sleep. Um, it it doesn't have to be something you know so jarring and so intense and and you know granted that doesn't always happen some dogs you know will have a heart attack or whatever right, else, of course
1: but, but um, I, I you know
0: there I, I there think is that opportunity there that is, we can do that and it's
1: something and and as and having a mutt filled dog gives everyone a chance to do that I mean it's not like line up, you know, for that moment. On the other hand, it gives you a chance to give that peaceful ending and not have it be a dog you've had your whole life living, you living in dread the whole time. Oh my God, they're going to die. Yep. They're all going to die. But if you get a senior dog, what you're really doing is making those golden years, such a beautiful transition to when they say I'm done and, and, and they do say it to us. So, it's it's really That's wonderful right. what you've done Sherry. We've run out of time but it's really it's oh. wonderful what Muttville's doing. 8000 dogs adopted hundreds of percent our
0: website Tell yes check out our website absolutely
1: muscle.org. we have lots of great stories videos dogs you do all you the do that we love absolutely i'll put a link to it with the podcast of the show it's truly wonderful to connect with you again and to know that you really are a maker of silver linings whether it's for senior dogs or senior dogs during <laughs> covid you you are a, a a beacon of light and energy thank you so much sherry franklin for all you do for all the critters Oh, and thank you, Tracy. Love talking to you. This show is brought to you in part by Merrick Pet Food, which has been making natural, nutritious pet food for 30 years with varieties crafted with healthy grains or their grain-free recipes. Merrick Foods never use preservatives, fillers, or anything artificial. Recipes always start with proteins, USDA-certified meats and fresh-caught fish as the first ingredient, along with actual fresh fruits and vegetables. This show is also supported by Earth Animal, privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, who have combined science and nature to create products for natural animal wellness. Earth Animal's Nature's Protection line provides flea and tick solutions without chemicals, and their Zen tabs and Zen pens are made with full-spectrum hemp oil with naturally occurring CBD to calm dogs and cats with anxiety. This show is also sponsored in part by Canine Active, a natural mobility supplement to help senior dogs with the aches and pains of old age move comfortably again. Clinical trials of Canine Active show improvement in a dog's mobility within a week without side effects. For senior dogs who are already taking other supplements and medications, Canine Active can be safely used along with them. I'm very happy to be able to welcome back to the show Nate Fields. He's the CEO of the Urban Resource Institute, which doesn't sound, at least to my ears, like what it is. What it does, and and Nate has created it and architected the PALS program, People and Animals Living Safely. It's the largest provider of domestic violence shelter and services in the U.S., and it's based out of New York City, which obviously during the pandemic has hit harder than anywhere else and the facts and information about domestic violence going up precipitously during the the heavy part of the COVID pandemic are documented. And so I imagine that Urban Resource Institute has been more in demand and its services more in demand than ever before. Nat, thanks for being here. Thanks for having created the Urban Resource Institute and for being there for people Whose whose plight is quite uh, invisible to many of us.
3: Well, Tracy, thanks for having me on the show, and thanks for that acknowledgement. Uh, just as we get started, I do want to commend our staff members who are these essential workers who often are, are not mentioned, but they provide such a, a vital services, uh, a vital bi- vital service, excuse me for victims of domestic violence and their pets. So, thanks for that acknowledgement and. Uh, uh, and giving me a moment just to acknowledge our staff members. I, yes, I, I uh, want to
1: take I'd like to take my hat off to them too. You know, we all think essential workers are only perhaps medical people in a medical setting, but you have seven shelters throughout New York City, and those shelters all have to be have people there to help organize them, to keep people safe to deal with people's emotional and maybe physical issues. and th- those those workers, all the time, pandemic or no pandemic, or again, invisible to the rest of society, but they're essential to protecting the most vulnerable. And the fact that your shelters not only welcome pets with the people in jeopardy, but you've taken in, as of May, you had taken in your 300th pet. It's really very, a very dramatic part of New York City's safety net for people in jeopardy.
3: It, it really is. I mean, even, and you know this, Tracy, before uh, this crisis, this never uh, seen before pandemic in our lifetime hit, we were already challenged with doing very serious work. You know, the Urban Resource Institute, as you said, started in 1980, and we grew to over, uh, to being able to serve, provide services to over 1,200 victims of domestic violence across our 12 shelters at any particular time. We didn't just grow, but we sort of peeled back the onion to understand that many survivors were being left out of services because uh, we were not t- we were not taking into account their risk factors. And so when we started to look at uh, people who had pets, we recognized that only 3% of shelters across our nation would only take in survivors who had pets. And this was so important because the stats are still very true only 48% of victims, of the, well, 40% of victims of domestic violence said, I'm not leaving my pet behind. I am not going to leave uh, my pet behind to seek safety. So they would stay in those relationships uh, because uh, we as a city and system did not create an opportunity to reduce the obstacle to, to, uh, to have pets with them. And this is, again, we know uh, one in three women will be impacted by domestic violence. And still today, two out of every three uh, uh, women who are murdered, uh, murdered as a result of intimate partner violence. You combine this with over 68% of households now, American households have pets. Uh, we had to do something to really create, uh, reduce obstacles to create options, safety options for victims of domestic violence. And we were so happy as we started to look at the data, talk to survivors and talk to experts to create PALs. And so vital even now during this pandemic, as you can imagine, to have Ah, uh, seeking safety and having your pet with you. but there are still some challenges.
1: The challenges have to do with physically, where can you place these people with their pets? I mean, how can you give them safety both from too close confinement with other people but also some place that the pets can be?
2: Uh, yes, and
3: and just on a very primary basis that, when we started to tell uh, 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 Americans to stay home uh, because this virus is so active, so contagious, that was the right thing to do. But we needed to broaden our message. Well, we didn't realize that it might have had an unintended consequence because telling a victim of domestic violence to stay home was sometimes the, the home is not the safest place for her or him right. uh, created some challenges. And so we had to expand the message to say that our shelters are open. And to look at the complexity, our shelters who can accommodate uh, pets are still open. So we've, we're doing a lot of work to point it at survivors to say services are still available and to understand they're battling a variety of risk factors. Sometimes the fear of leaving your home and maybe uh, increasing your chances of uh, contracting uh, COVID-19 may outweigh the risk of staying home uh, in an abusive uh, household. And so part of our work is to say, let's inform that. Let's let make sure you know that uh, services are available. And this is what we've done in shelter to increase your safety and shelter. If you're worried about, if I leave, what's my likelihood of uh, contracting coronavirus? And thankfully, our shelters, you know, we have seven shelters uh at, Urban Resource Institute, URI, devoted to people and their pets. Uh, we can accommodate 172 families with their pets at any particular time. Uh, and our shelters are apartment-style units. Some people think about a domestic violence shelter and they think about a big room with right, uh, beds. Right, a lot of beds. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right, that's right. And, and that's what, uh, you know, if you're mean, thinking about that and thinking about seeking safety during a pandemic, you might say to yourself, I'm not going to go there, right? But that's not the the reality. Our shelters are apartment-style environments, and so it creates an opportunity to increase safety because you do have those physical barriers. And our shelters were very engaged in a lot of safety precautions. We do give out masks and protective coverings. We do uh, provide a lot of information on COVID-19. We do have resources with uh, partners in our uh, in terms of our health facilities. Uh, so we wouldn't dispel the rumors or the concerns, I should say, that uh, it's a big gymnasium where people are going to be gathered together living during uh, uh, during a time of a pandemic. It's not that. But shelters are open. Shelters that URI operates are self-contained apartments where people, survivors and their pets, uh, can be there reducing certain risk factors.
1: Which makes a mother with children and pets Feel completely safe. They're inside their own space, safe from what they might imagine other people in the shelter being like. Maybe it, leaving aside uh, physical problems like virus. Maybe you think, oh, it's a big open space, and what if there's other women that have been physically battered or they're emotionally distraught? I don't want to. I don't want to further traumatize my own children seeing that and yet you're really going to have a private space. How do you, other than obviously whatever press picks up the story of what Urban Resource Institute's doing, how do you let these at-risk women, I'm going to say women, I know we can say and men, but I I think the number of abused Mm -hmm. men is probably infinitesimal just because women are are smaller and more vulnerable, and that's the way Mm -hmm. the world works. How do you let them know? Do the police have information About URI, do they try and—is it fair to ask them to talk about it if they go to a domestic violence call and the woman isn't at that moment bloodied and beaten, but she's terrified and she's called? Do they have a way to let these women and families know what you're doing?
3: We do. I mean, as a nation, we're doing a lot more through media uh, and and public awareness campaigns to say our shelters are open. And in New York City with URI, we're partnering uh, to criminal justice and other advocates. Uh, that would look like, uh, you know, in New York City, we have a central hotline number, 1-800-621-HOPE. And oh. we work with New York City hotline to ensure that they know all the services that exist in terms of shelters. We have a few specialized services, a shelter that works with victims of domestic violence and uh, those who may be disabled. And of course, we have UI shelters uh, that work with uh, all victims of domestic violence and their pets. And so we really work with the New York City Hotline to understand our services, where they exist. Uh, so when they engage in families and they receive over 80 to 90,000 calls uh, per year, that they have a good understanding of our services so they can provide uh, callers, victims of domestic violence, with appropriate information. And so when they make a referral, uh, it's the most up-to-date information available. Uh, we also do a lot of work with uh, 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 the mayor's office to talk about our services and the availability of our services and how we're working during this COVID-19 time frame. But some of our services are done virtually now. Of course, in our shelters, uh, people are there. Our staff members are committed to being there and providing services. But some of our uh, specialized services, those people who work with uh, victims of domestic violence and pets, are working more virtually with
1: them. So is it true that domestic violence calls and actual events have increased during COVID? Did they definitely spike? Or is that just something that the rest of us read in the media and don't really we don't really have a sense of it. We think, oh, I guess because everyone's cooped up together and this man with anger and violence issues now has no other outlet for them, whatever it might have been, going to work, going to the bar, doing exercise. Is it true that it's gone up a lot?
3: It's It's been uneven. On a national, if you talk to the folks at our colleagues at the National Domestic Violence Hotline, they will say there have been more visitors uh, to their website and people are, are, are on longer. Uh, if you look at the New York City hotline for April, we see more calls. What we're not seeing uh, are those callers necessarily translating uh, into "I'm ready to need of shelter, I'm I ready see. to leave," or more orders of protection. We see a decrease in actual. Uh, at least in New York City, crim- uh, police res- uh, 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 responding to domestic violence calls and protective orders. So what we think, right, because we've been at it for about 40 years, right that uh, people are, are probably uh, having challenges seeking safety, and the risk factor of going outside is pronounced. And so uh, we believe that a part of the work is to, is to continue to inform the public, targeting messages to victims of domestic violence, services are available and sort of having this community response model that if you know somebody who's in an abusive relationship to check in on them Mm -hmm. to work with them Mm -hmm. around establishing code words Uh, don't be uh, in a situation where you're judging them or telling them what to do so you can get more information by going to our website because we have tips there at urinyc.org or you can call the national domestic violence hotline or chat with them or text them To get tips on how to work with someone who you uh, may be concerned about that may be in an abusive relationship. And so, if you have a pet, we have tips on how you can work with someone who has a pet. We would say, make sure you're talking to them that they're safe to talk. They can establish a cold word if so the abusive partner comes in they can discontinue the conversation right. or change the conversation. Right. Uh, we can talk about making sure that you have documents if you have to leave, that you can uh, leave with them quickly. If you have a pet, to uh, bring documentation around your pet or resources like food and some money. We'll have concrete goods at our shelter, but just in the interim, if you're not going to shelter, to have those things with you. So we have an ability to inform the public, but also inform individuals who may be close to victims on things that they can do to increase the safety of someone in an unsafe situation.
1: I think that's actually a really important part of it. I know that when I volunteered at the retreat in East Hampton, which is a domestic violence shelter out on the east end of Long Island, that we had quite a bit of training, and a lot of it had to do with how to recognize abuse because it isn't completely evident. A lot of the abuse... And I also did some volunteer work in California around it. It happens below the neck to a woman so that it can be covered by Mm -hmm. clothing. So whatever physical abuse has happened, bruises or what other horrible things, you can't see them. But if you are a friend or a neighbor or even a provider of other services to someone and you have these concerns, what you're pointing out is really important because to say to somebody, how could you possibly stay with someone who beats you? Or I don't understand, why do you stay if your children are scared or get hit? It's that judgment and that that complete ignorance of how the cycle begins and, and what sustains it is not helpful. But to be able to be an outlet for somebody with a safe word, like you call up and just say the word Mickey, and Mickey means I really need your help now, or Mickey could be the word you use in the middle of a conversation so that the abuser... As you say, if they came in the room or picked up the phone line or something, you would stop talking on the topic. It's really quite terrifying, but I think that it's terrifying to know that people right next door to you, given the numbers, there's probably some amount of abuse going on and people are scared and they feel really alone. So I think what URI.org is a really good place to go to figure out how to help neighbors or yourself or others family members once removed, a sister, a brother, a, a mother, an aunt. There's a lot of people who should be able to pull together to bring people to your doorsteps. I, I, we shouldn't expect the people who are victims to do this all on their own. They're already so diminished by whatever amount of time they've been abused. They don't have the confidence, the strength, the, the faith, the courage to do this without help. So I really appreciate that what you're doing does need to involve a community. And somehow the pandemic, I think, made people more aware that we are all in this together, even if we have to be segregated from each other. So I'm hoping that what you offer, that other people can help bring people to the doors of these safe spaces and understand that we all need to help. It's not like another person's problem. It's everybody's problem. It's, It's our world together, right?
3: Absolutely. And for those victims who have pets, it's an important time. The unconditional love that a pet affords uh, someone is just uh, amazing in, in a time of crisis because the survivor is already in crisis. Uh, but on top of that, uh, another crisis such as uh, coronavirus, uh, even more important to have the whole family together so they can heal again and, uh, and have the comfort that a, a pet allows for. So we're definitely working to keep the whole family together. Uh, we definitely have our doors open. Some things that are unique about URI shelters too is that uh, many of them we have a pet haven attached to it. Uh, uh supporters like Banfield, uh, right. have uh, provided resources so we could, uh, uh, have some outdoor space and really good to have it because, you know, we'll of course have safety measures of social distancing and families wearing, uh, face coverings when out there, but they don't have to go outside. And we're noticing a lot of victims of domestic violence who are in our shelters. They're staying in place. They're not going out as much, so we really have to ramp up our supplies in terms of not just food for uh, humans, but food uh, and for other, the pets for as pets. well. Nat,
1: we've That's run right. out of we've run out of time, but it's wonderful what you're doing. And I'll have a link to uri.org so that everyone can learn more. Thank you for everything you're doing and all of your great innovations to keep people and their pets together at the hardest times of all. Thanks a lot.
3: Tracy, always good, and that's urinyc.org. I'm I beg your i looking forward to connecting with you in the future.
1: URI.nyc.org. Got it. Thank you.
3: Okay. You take care.